Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. Today's message is titled, The Weapon of Christmas, Why Celebrating the Birth of Christ is Good for Churches, Cities, and Nations. And I hope one day it'll be a book uh, that is so fitting because we are now living in the Christmas city uh, that might be a blessing to get out to this local area. Uh, With the Christmas season upon us, I thought it was important for us to understand uh, the matter of Christian celebrations. Uh, As Christians, we ought to know what to celebrate, why to celebrate, and how to celebrate according to God's word. And unfortunately, there's a lot of disagreement about this topic in Christendom. Uh, It's all over the map, honestly. Some Protestant denominations, uh, they uphold like a robust liturgical calendar that uh, is kind of reminiscent of Roman Catholicism. And uh, they are other Protestant denominations that will not celebrate any holidays whatsoever. And so we have a spectrum across uh, even Protestant Christianity. You also have mega churchianity that has polluted and uh, distorted the Christmas holiday to be about Santa Claus and reindeer and elves and all the things that essentially make it no longer impactful for the church's witness in the world. And so with that being said, I want to just offer a glossary of terms that I think is helpful to start the conversation. Um, According to church history, celebrations really fall into three categories. You have holy days, you have religious festivals, and then you have civil celebrations. Um, So, uh, you know, religious festivals would would include celebrations like Christmas and Easter, and civil celebrations are like Fourth of July or Veterans Day that are having a uh, non-sacred relationship to the church. Now, according to Scripture, the New Covenant Church has only one designated holy day. There's only one designated holy day, and that is the Sabbath day. And that is the day that we set apart each week, according to the Word of God, so that we might uh, worship the Lord. This is the Christian Sabbath. Um, It's the only day that Scripture commands us to observe. Christmas is not commanded to observe. Neither is Easter, neither is Good Friday, but the Sabbath day, we are permitted to go to one another and actually command that they show up, not on our own authority, but upon the authority of Scripture that they should be at church according to the Word of God. Now, to provide um, some context on that, the Westminster Directory of Public Worship, which is uh, part of our confession of faith, it's an ancillary document to that, It says, there is no day commanded in Scripture to be kept holy under the gospel but the Lord's day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days, vulgarly called holy days, have no warrant in the Word of God and are not to be continued, end quote. Now, I want to provide you guys some historical context. Uh, Before the Reformation, the church had a multitude of biblically unfounded holy days. That was the reality of the church at that time. Saints' Days, Martyrs' Days, Ash Wednesday, Lent, uh, you know, all of these uh, man-invented 
holidays that were called holy days in the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers' uh, intention when they wrote that Westminster Confession uh, was not to eliminate all religious festivals or religious holidays, but to reform church holy days. That was the intention. There's a distinction there. See, under Rome, religious festivals like Christmas and Easter, uh, as well as like the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception, all of these other days that they have, they were and still are elevated to holy days. Now, why is that important to understand? Um, Because uh, when you have Christmas or Ash Wednesday or the Immaculate Conception, when these are elevated to holy days, you can actually afflict church discipline upon a person. And so the Reformers said, no, there is no grounds for that in the Bible. There is only grounds for the Christian Sabbath. And so the goal was not to eliminate holy days uh, or religious festivals for that matter. It was to clarify what is a holy day and what is a religious festival. And so uh, the Reformers essentially found that practice of enforcing biblical authority upon non-biblically mandated festivals to be wrong. And they took great measures to eliminate the idea of Christmas and Good Friday and All Saints Day and as being holy days from the Protestant church. And to be clear, they did not originally intend to eliminate these as valid religious festivals. That was not their intention. They recognized them as valid religious festivals, at least certain ones. In fact, several reformers, including the Synod of Dort, which is what put together uh, the Doctrines of Grace, they took steps to actually officially recognize five evangelical feast days. And this has been common for the last several hundred years in the Protestant church. And they would include uh, Christmas, Good Friday, uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Ascension, and Pentecost. Those were essentially the reformed Protestant view of religious feast days. They're not holy days. So when we as Protestants speak of Christmas or speak of Good Friday, uh, we're not speaking of an obligated holy day. If someone in our church, if we had a Christmas Eve service that wasn't on a Sunday, happens to be there today, uh, that didn't want to attend because they had no conviction on that matter, they would not be required to attend that if it was an extra service. Uh, We couldn't come to them with the authority of Scripture to demand that they show up. Um, That's not the case because it is not a holy day. It is a religious festival. Now, as the Reformation progressed and the conflict between the Reformers and Rome continued to get heated, uh, Protestants became increasingly hostile toward even the religious festivals. Uh, Because why? Well, they had a historic association with Roman Catholicism. And so they didn't want, essentially, anything to do with that. And so we have to understand that the Reformers were products of their time. They were products of that generation. And they were dealing with a society that associated Christmas with the Roman Catholic Church exclusively. And they didn't want to further that affiliation in any possible way. And so to add on to that, the Roman Catholic celebration of Christmas was distorted. Uh, It was not characterized by holiness or a gospel-centered joy. 
It actually divulged into drunkenness and mask wearing and idolatry and man-made worship and all types of things that had nothing to do with the nativity of Christ. And so as a result, the later reformers, including the Puritans that were founded here in America, uh, determined to eliminate religious festivals like Christmas altogether. Um, In fact, in Massachusetts in 1659, the celebration of Christmas became a criminal offense. It was absolutely illegal to celebrate Christmas in Massachusetts for about, I think, about a 10-year period. Um, It was about what would be now maybe like a $100 fine. Christians at that time would actually go outside on Christmas Day and work uh, just to demonstrate to the onlooking world that uh, to win them to the Protestant view of holy days. And so again, it's crucial to remember that these people, they were shaped by the circumstances of their time. They were shaped by the uh, generation of Roman Catholicism. They were in the midst of a protest against Rome. And what happens when you're in the midst of a protest? Well, you often pendulum swing. You pendulum swing, you uh, essentially, we occasionally discard elements that are actually valid. We, as the old saying goes, throw the baby out with the bathwater. That can occur. It often does. Uh, And as a Reformed church, uh, I think it's important for us to understand uh, the right view a balanced view of Christmas and celebration. Uh, Modern Christians are often historically illiterate. I think that we have uh, a lacking understanding of church history. And in our ignorance, we sometimes take advantage of those people who are prone to this kind of uh, conspiracy theory mindset. Um, And this is pretty common. Now, there are conspiracy theories, and some of them have come true. So, uh, we have uh, realized that the time that we live in as well. But uh, people, these people that are kind of prone to this mindset who are maybe eager to be skeptical, um, and we live in a time of lots of institutional distrust, but these people often like to believe that history isn't what it says it is. And they often overextend that to a place where they don't trust anything. And there's always an ulterior narrative that they can take, and once they adopt this new narrative, they essentially become the authority of that narrative, and they become the, uh, through their pride, become like, I know the truth about the matter. This happens a lot in Christmas in the church, uh, because people come up and say, oh, Christmas? Let me tell you about Christmas. The true story about how Christmas came to be. Let me tell you about its pagan roots. Let me tell you about, uh, you know, Sol Invictus. Let me tell you about Saturnalia. Let me tell you about Constantine, right? So they, they come up with these narratives that essentially make them the authority. They're a documentary in themselves, right? And so we have to be careful not to throw out what I believe is a very clear and well-documented history of Christmas. And so uh, the Protestant church, just to be clear, is not a new church. The Protestant church is not a new church. Uh, It's the Catholic church reformed back to Scripture. Does that make sense? It's why many Protestants actually call themselves reformed Catholics. We're not saying we're Roman Catholics. We're saying that we are doing what the church was doing, went sideways, and we got it back to Scripture. 
Uh, the Puritan writer William Perkins, he wrote a classic Christian book called A Reformed Catholic. Uh, it's a well-respected book in Protestant circles. Um, and so we don't need to be afraid of that phrase. Luther and Calvin did not launch a novel church. It's not a new church. They reformed the Catholic church. They didn't even want to split from the Catholic church. They wanted to get the Catholic church back to the gospel. Uh, Doug Wilson once made a very helpful analogy on the issue. He says, when you ask a Protestant where their denomination was during the Middle Ages, they often say something like, preserving the gospel in secret, hiding from the Catholics. However, a more accurate question is, where was your face when it had mud on it? And the answer is that it was right there on your head, end quote. I think it's a really good reality. Where was the Christian church in the Middle Ages? Well, it was right there. The Catholic church was the Christian church in the Middle Ages. It had mud on its face. That is our uh, spiritual ancestry. And so whether Protestants want to acknowledge it or not, before the Reformation, the Catholic church was the Christian church. It went sideways, but it was the Christian church. And so when Protestants see that Christmas was a growing religious festival that was formally recognized by Rome, and I don't have the time to go into the details, uh, but in the early 30, uh, 300s, about 312 under Constantine, uh, we have to recognize essentially that was the first formalization of Christmas, but Christmas was already probably operating as a national holiday at some degree because the Christian movement was growing and was about to take over the Roman Empire uh, under the reign of Constantine. And so Christmas does not have pagan roots. Let me just be clear. No pagan is going to start a holiday about the birth of Jesus. Okay, that's a basic statement, right? No, Christian Christmas is, is not a pagan holiday. Uh, no, the Christians who founded Christmas were either A, uh, commemorating their God as humans always do. You could find this throughout history. Uh, or B, they were cultural warriors fighting a pagan holiday with a kingdom alternative to Roman worship. Um, and if we look at Christmas, what has it done? Well, it's absolutely conquered other holidays and it's brought millions of people to Christ. And so the celebration of Christmas whether we want to admit it or not, has been absolutely effective for the gospel across time. So Christmas uh, was birthed out of the early Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that's, that's the history. But at the time, the Catholic Church was the Christian Church. And so we have to understand those distinctions. Uh, like Christ, Christmas is always under attack. Always. Um, it's always being perverted. Even in our generation, we're, we're kind of dealing with a similar trend that we're seeing with, like the Puritans had. Uh, we have a perversion in our generation. Uh, we're seeing uh, that Christmas has turned into some sort of like uh, sentimental, therapeutic, you know, celebration where it's about cold weather and family and, you know, gifts and, and, you know, elves and Santa Claus and all those things. Uh, and as a result, what have Christians done? They've checked out, right? They, they've abandoned the celebration altogether because, hey, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? Uh, today, I, I want to argue why I believe this is the wrong approach to Christmas. Um, that is, I believe Scripture offers us compelling reasons and principles to celebrate 
uh, the birth of Christ. Sorry, I want to watch my throat as I keep going here. As we know, we are creatures that are bound by time. Okay? Uh, what happens within the span of time is actually important to us because we're living in time. It's why we rightfully celebrate and memorialize significant moments in our life. It's, it's why we celebrate significant moments in history. It's why we do those things. And we do this not only to uh, reinforce the importance of the event for ourselves, but we also do this to remind and relay the significance of those events to other people. Does that make sense? In other words, celebrations are really, truly a form of evangelism. Okay, they, in a sense, uh, sermonize those that are around them. They indoctrinize and indoctrinate and, and, and I would say even catechize the culture by what is particularly celebrated. They teach others what is to be esteemed and what is to be honored and what is to be remembered. Okay, so events and celebrations are important. Um, we do this with, again, birthdays and anniversaries and historical events. We create calendars as individuals, as cities, as nations. Calendars are important to us. And what do they do? Well, they uphold and reinforce what's important to us as a nation, what should be remembered, what should be honored, what is to believed to be right. That's what calendars do. I recently read an article, a pastor said, is it therefore not fitting and right for the church to keep time according to Christ, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one in whom all things were created through and for, the one who faithfully continues to hold it all together? Are we not to remember and celebrate the birth of one whom time itself revolves, end quote? I think he asked an important question, especially because timekeeping or religious calendar, calendaring, if that's a word, uh, it's not new to God's people. Uh, the Old Testament had religious calendaring. Um, Jesus was keeping festivals and times and seasons. Uh, he was fulfilling festivals and times and seasons. Um, as it pertains to the celebrating of the birth of Christ, I just want to give you guys some theological context and then I'm going to give you some more practical realities. So, uh, from the creation of the world, uh, we have approximately 4,000 years uh, until the birth of Christ, approximately, arguably. Uh, 4,000 years of people longing for Christmas. 4,000 years from Genesis 3.15 that promises essentially a serpent crusher that's going to restore humanity back to God. We know that Adam and Eve are in the presence of God because they have no sin. They commit sin. They're separated from God by their sin. They can no longer be in union with God without their sin being paid for. And they have to pay for it with death, blood. And, and so in order for them to be reconciled back to God, we need, a, we need a Savior. We need Christ to come. And the great question of angels and humanity was, when would the Savior come? You know, when would... Uh, the serpent crusher come? Uh, when would this baby be born and reconcile us to God? And it's that dramatic theological backdrop that we uh, should be painting our hearts for Christmas. The anticipation of 4,000 years. We're on the other side of it. What a blessing. Um, but this was something that humanity longed for. That's why Matthew one twenty one 
is so significant. It says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's not saving all people. We know that. But he's came to save his people from their sins. I believe the opening stanza, which we just sung, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, it says, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Celebration is certainly warranted. The birth of Christ becomes the most important event in human history. I mean, it, the world clock is based off of the birth of Christ. It's 2023 because it was 2,023 years ago, approximately from the birth of Christ. For that reason alone, it is certainly worth memorializing. In fact, it would be very strange not to. Be very strange not to. Now, apart from the theological and redemptive reasons to observe Christmas, uh, what are the cultural and evangelistic reasons that Christians should celebrate the birth of Christ? Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, it's the passage talking about a child will be born to us and his government, the government will rest upon his shoulders and to his government there will be no end. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. I'm going to briefly talk about a couple of those verses. It says, for a child will be born to us in Isaiah 9, 6, a son will be given to us. I often hear Christians who say that they don't celebrate Christmas because there's no biblical foundation to do so and I think that's wrong. Let me tell you why. Um, there's no biblical instruction, clear instruction, for a lot of things that Christians do. Um, there's no biblical ins- instruction to build church buildings or to have instruments in worship. Uh, there are examples of those things. There are descriptions of those things, but not prescriptions of those things. But we engage in these practices because what? One, they're not forbidden in Scripture. And two, we can actually see the principles reflected in Scripture. Now, we can also do that with the celebration of the birth of Christ. We read Luke today. Not only was there a formal announcement from the angels, uh, from the heavens, that literally burst forth in a celebration of praise about the birth of Christ, there was also an invitation. Come see, come see this baby to the shepherds. But more than that, that passage of Scripture provides us with, I would say, even a more concrete example of a celebration that includes traveling and honor and giving of gifts to commemorate the birth of a, of a Savior, the King of the Jews. You know, Matthew 2, 10 through 11, the Magi saw the star. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't know about you, but that sounds exactly like a celebration to me. That is, they were invited, they were coming, they, were, they traveled, they brought gifts, they, they praised, they celebrated. This is the very marks of a celebration. So there is certainly grounds to celebrate the birth of Christ. Everybody celebrated the birth of Christ that knew about the birth of Christ. And so scripture offers us grounds to celebrate the advent of the Messiah. Second, Christmas is a political event. It truly is. Isaiah continues saying, he says, the government shall be upon his shoulder and there will be no end to the increase of his government. Check this. Increase of his government. 
incrementalism, gradualism. There is not a government. We, we often think that Jesus, it's just the world's going to be a mess, and when Jesus comes back, he'll just establish his government. That's not how Scripture describes it. That's not how it's described in Daniel. That's not how it's described in the parable of the kingdom parables in Matthew about the mustard tree and about the leaven and the, uh, and the lump, and it's not characterized here. It said there will be no end to the increase of his government. The birth of Christ is a reminder to us and to the world that God invaded time to overthrow the rule of Satan and the effects of the fall. That's what it is. We just want to put a definition on it. The birth of Christ marks the establishment of a new order, of a new kingdom, a new ruler of humanity, a new authority over the nations. This is how Jesus could say in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. You can't say that if you don't have the authority. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar. No, the, the authority had been given to him. Christmas marks an establishment of a new order. Matthew Henry once wrote of Christ's government, It shall be an increasing government. It shall be multiplied. The bounds of his kingdom shall be more and more enlarged, and many shall be added to it daily. The shine of it shall increase, and it shall beam more and more brightly in the world as time passes. It shall be a peaceable government, agreeable to his character and the prince of peace. He shall rule by love, shall rule in men's hearts, shall rule in this world, so that wherever his government is, there shall be peace. And his government increases the peace, or as the government increases, peace shall increase. The more we are subject to Christ, the easier, easier and safer we will live, end quote. So what I want to distinguish here is that the, 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 the Christmas story, the nativity, um, it didn't establish a parallel government. We think of like dualism, we're, we're, we're here fighting against the rule of Satan. Satan lost. That, that has been, he's overcome. Uh, he didn't establish a competing government. He established a government that essentially is an unending and all-dominating government that will win. And it's constantly winning in time. Every century, there are more and more Christians on the earth than there were in the previous century. In fact, there are more Christians to ratio of the total population of the world as we go century by century. Christ is continuing to take the world as he promised he would through the gospel, by the means of the church, over the centuries. Uh, Doug Wilson has a quote that I love. He says, there is not one square inch of the world where Jesus says to the devil, you can have that. It's all Christ. It's all Christ. The birth of Christ, uh, the tri his triumph over sin, our reconciliation to God by faith, um, these are Christ's weapon to win the world. Christmas is about winning the world. It means that by Christ, he will govern humanity with a new order. He conquers his enemies how? We should all know because we were all enemies of God. That's what the scriptures teach. How does Christ conquer his enemies? By conversion. He converts our hearts. He literally takes us and gives us new hearts that were once hearts of stone that are now hearts of flesh.
Do we invite Jesus into our hearts? Not according to Scripture. No. We are enemies of God. We hate God according to Scripture. No, God changes our hearts. He invades our hearts. He resurrects us. But non-tenant, a friend of mine from New Zealand, he says, the historical moment of Christmas and the annual memorialization of it is one of the ways the Son of God goes forth to war against the spiritual forces of darkness in our age. In other words, the church's celebration of the birth of Christ is impressing the kingdom's calendar into a world that celebrates evil. Do you get this? There's actually an important reality here. Okay, the celebration of the birth of Christ is impressing the kingdom's calendar into a world that has a desire to celebrate evil. We want to celebrate, the world has a different calendar. And who controls time now? And who controls the seasons? And who controls everything? Well, Christ does. Christ's calendar will reign. We don't have a day that we're memorializing Satan's throwing out of heaven, right? I know lots of pagans that would love that, especially if there was some in Iowa that wanted it. But the reality is that calendars categorize the culture. Again, we, we know that calendars tell society what's important, what should be honored, what must be known. And having Christmas celebrated on our calendar tells the world that Christ came to save sinners. Timetable dominion is a real thing, okay? If you're not aware of it, there are people that are trying to change A.D. to what? You know, C.E. or B.C. to B.C.E. Timetable dominion is a real thing. They want to change the narrative, the historical reality of time. Uh, Christ says no. Uh, The kingdom will not permit that. Satan wants us to see and think that Christmas has been so corrupted, uh, so lost, that we just abandon it altogether. Just hand it over to the world. You know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket anyways. Just give it over to the world, you know. Um, The old quote, right? We don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Why are we going to try to restore something that's unsavable? You know, let's just give it up. But if Christians abandon the Christian calendar, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday and Christmas... Uh, then there's not going to be no calendar. There's going to be a pagan calendar that goes in the place of the Christian calendar, and it's going to start leading people not towards a celebration of righteousness and Christ, but towards a celebration of evil and self-righteousness and wickedness. And so to abandon the Christian calendar, in my opinion, is a real disobedience to the Great Commission. And let me tell you why. In America... We are called to do what? Well, we're called to disciple this nation. That's part of the Great Commission. We are to disciple this nation to Christ. We want this nation to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Anybody who disagrees is either ignorant or not a believer. We want this nation to be Christianized. We want our homes to be Christianized. We want our schools to be Christianized. We would like our media to be Christianized. Now, as far as the gospel will permit it, Lord willing, those things might happen. But the gospel is the means to Christianize. A spiritual message comes into us. It's the gospel. Does it stay spiritual or does it Christianize your life? It Christianizes your finances. It Christianizes your kid's education. 
it Christianizes everything you do. And so we want the same for this nation. And in other words, I'll say this. You cannot separate the evangelization of a nation from the Christianization of the nation. If you evangelize a nation and God actually converts people, you will Christianize that nation. You will have Christian laws and Christian media and Christian businesses, Christian homes and Christian churches. You cannot separate those two. And so the celebration of Christmas is a good thing for America in the same way that beautiful church buildings are good for America. When you walk into uh, Salt Lake City, it becomes pretty clear who's taking dominion over that city. You see a temple and about 250 steeples. It's a visual dominion. And who owns Salt Lake City? Well, Christ does. And every one of those church buildings, I believe, in time, will be absolutely taken back for Christ. They won't be Mormon churches. They will be Christian churches because Christ doesn't lose. And so in the same way that beautiful church buildings are the same way that marriage is a great visual symbol of a spiritual reality, it's good for America. You want to have a really healthy country? Have a bunch of really healthy biblical families. You want to have a city that's submitted to Christ? Make sure the church is at the center of it, like it used to be in every town across the world. You know what they used to do when they built a town? What was the first building they built? The church, and then the hospital, and then a brewery. And so they become earthly beacons that confront the darkness and perversion in our culture. They imprint this kingdom culture on the world that needs Christ. And so the question that I'm going to last answer here is how should Christians celebrate Christmas? How? Um, I know I keep using a bunch of Doug Wilson stuff here. Doug's probably the only guy that continues to talk about Christmas in such a deep and rich theological perspective. And we need more people, more theologians talking about Christmas in a practical reality. Uh, Sproul contributed. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has contributed. But I really appreciated this statement. It says, quote, Don't turn Christmas into a period of morbid, introspective penitence. This is a season of joy. Celebrate the stuff. Celebrate the materiality of Christmas. Use fudge, eggnog, wine, and roast beef. Use presents and wrapping paper and lights. If you can't rightly imprint your godly joy on fudge, presents, shopping, baking, family, and feasting, you're not grasping the joy of the gospel. He says, quote, This might seem a little bit out of control, as though I'm urging you to go overboard. Of course I'm urging you to go overboard. The whole, that's the whole point. The gospel is overboard. God does not ladle out grace with a teaspoon. And for that reason, the Lord is inviting you to everlasting, infinite, and unquenchable joy. End quote. Amen. I think that what Doug is saying there um, is when the thing celebrated is huge, the celebration must also be huge. Right? Uh, that logic is very easy to understand for 25th anniversaries. I don't, right? It's very easy for college graduations. It should be very easy for Christmas. Use Christmas trees and use presents and use the things. By God's grace, we live in a city that understands that. Christians essentially should celebrate in a way that's worthy of what we're celebrating. And what are we celebrating? God and sinners reconciled. The reconciliation of God and sinners. This is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. 
Therefore, the celebration should match it. In other words, the celebration of Christmas should be excessive because God's grace in Christ is excessive. Christ is glorious, and therefore the celebration of him coming to save us should be glorious. This would apply to Easter. This would apply to Good Friday. This would apply to all these elements. These evangelical feast days that we talked about earlier, these are all based on critical moments in the life of Christ. They're actually rooted in Scripture. They're not holy days. They're, they're festivals. They're good for society. They're good for the world. They're good because they teach cities and nations what should be remembered and what should be honored and what is valuable. Now, to be very clear, every celebration must be done how? Well, to the glory of God. It must be done uh, not just with pure actions, but also with pure hearts. Uh, This means that we should reject all the perversions on Christmas, including Santa Claus and including, uh, you know, elves. And these, these things, again, they're not inherently evil. But you got to see what Satan's doing here. It's truly an attack to create a counterfeit alternative to the key figure of Christmas. The world's alternative to Christmas is Santa Claus. I mean, and it's in our home too. It, it, it makes its way in. But truly, that's not what it's about. And yeah, you could do the St. Nick thing and you could talk about those realities. And I'm not saying that you, what you have to do. I'm just saying is be careful in a world that is absolutely trying to pervert the structure of Christmas to put up boundaries for your house. It's not about Santa Claus. It's not about reindeer or sleighs or cold weather. It's about Christ. And so Christmas should be a time of reverence and joy and prayer. Uh, It should be a time of generosity and peace. It should be a time of reflection upon the gospel. And ultimately, and I'm closing here, Christmas should saturate our homes with the good news that Christ was born. We are a forgetful people. You know that, right? Uh, The reason that God often had his Old Testament people memorialize realities that occurred in time is so that they would remember because they are forgetful. Do you understand why God gave the Passover or why God gave us the Lord's table in communion? We are a forgetful people. We, we actually take the Lord's Supper to remember because if we don't, we often find ourselves in a place of forgetfulness. And so our time tomorrow should be saturated with the gospel. And when we do this, when we, when we do this right, we will disciple our communities, and we will disciple our neighborhoods, and we will disciple our cities. And eventually, by God's grace, the more locally you focus, the more nationally it'll occur. And we will disciple this nation over the centuries to recognize the Lordship of Christ. And Christmas becomes just one of those incredible tools, one of those great weapons of the calendar to teach people of what is valuable, what is honorable, and what should be celebrated. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Christmas, for the reconciliation of us to you through the birth, life, death, resurrection of your Son. Lord, we ask that you would help us remember the value of such moments. Lord, that we would see and weep. Lord, that we would understand that without Christ, 
we would be eternally separated from you. Lord, help us to have a reverence, to help us to have an appreciation, a joy, a commitment, a meditation to understand and and really grasp the the detailed complexities, the biblical realities, the theological promises, the, the truths, the good news, the joy that all comes from Christmas. Lord, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.